maybe you've got a friend who who puts on all of the appearance of being really good at something, but it's just a show, right? Maybe it's a buddy with a, a fancy bass boat that costs more than all of their family's cars, right? It's got the latest uh, fish finders, hydraulic anchors, GPS, underwater cameras. Right? He's got thousands of dollars in rods and reels and tackle, but he can't catch a fish. Or you've got an aunt that's always buying new fabric to make quilts that she never makes. She's got a sewing machine with all the bells and whistles. She's got a quilting frame, uh, the works, right? But you've never seen a finished quilt. They like to think that their hobby is quilting, but in reality, it is shopping to quilt. This problem isn't limited to hobbies or activities either, right? Think of someone who puts on the airs of being just super nice and friendly, but in reality, they manipulate people. Now, we might call this, you know, talking a good game. And based on today's story, we might call it all leaves and no fruit. And it's a very easy problem to see in others, but man, it's very difficult to diagnose in ourselves. We're in a series called Stranger Things, and we're looking at some of the weirdest stories in the Bible, all right? And the weirder, the better. These are the, the difficult passages, the challenging passages, the ones that, that give us questions, the ones that, that, that critics of the Bible love to throw in our face. And one of these stories is found in Mark chapter 11, and, and it's all about the dangers of being all leaves and no fruit. But we might miss that point in this story because it requires some background knowledge that maybe we don't have. Now, this story, it takes place in the final days of Jesus' life before his arrest, before his sham show trial, before his execution by the Jewish religious leaders on a Roman cross. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem with his eyes wide open, right? In fact, he has drawn attention to his coming death and his resurrection multiple times. In just the previous chapter, uh, here's what Jesus tells his disciples as they are on their way into Jerusalem. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Right? So something big is about to happen. And Jesus knows it. This is also the holiest week on the Jewish calendar. It's Passover week. Millions of Jews from all across the Oikomene, the, the known world, come home. Now, in an ordinary week, some 50,000 to 100,000 people call Jerusalem home. But on this week, the population swells to, to 2 million plus. Passover was a festival of Jewish independence, celebrating their deliverance from slavery, from the Egyptians. And during this week, tensions with the hated Romans 
hit their peak, right? As this feast of freedom only served to remind them that they were currently under Rome's thumb. Imagine celebrating the 4th of July while being occupied by the Chinese, right? You get the picture. Now, the Roman governor's terrorist, terrorist alert system would have been set at red. The Roman fortifications in Jerusalem would be fully garrisoned. All the auxiliaries called up. Roman boots and swords would be visible in every street and down every alley. Passover is also a holy time of worship. On the evening of Passover, every household offered a sacrifice and shared in a memorial feast. Now, these sacrifices were carried out at the temple, and there were tens of thousands of, of bleeding sheep and goats, the mourning of doves. Right? Imagine the world's largest zoo, but it only had these three kinds of animals. And imagine all of the blood from all of those sacrifices. The temple became an assembly line of slaughter. And as the blood drained from each creature's neck, a, a priest would be there to catch some of it in a little round-bottomed goblet of silver or gold. It was rounded because it was never to be set down. And, and this priest hands the goblet to another priest. And then in a bucket brigade of priests, it's passed on down the line until the final priest pours out the blood on the altar. Now imagine this happening 40 times a minute, over and over and over again. One other little tidbit about the setting here. Just the day before was what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and this is a move that is just filled with messianic expectation and promise. And, and there are throngs of people who, who come out to welcome Jesus. They welcome him as a Messiah. They lay out their cloaks before him. They are hailing him with praises. Now, keep in mind that it just, what, in five days, there will be crowds shouting something entirely different. Crucify, crucify. But today, they're filled with praises and hosannas. Perhaps their hope is that Jesus will drive out the other man who rode into Jerusalem at just about the same time, but from a different direction. Pilate comes prancing into town triumphantly on horseback, accompanied by a legion of Roman soldiers. But Jesus wasn't coming as a military savior, right? He didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from their sins. So Jesus comes to town, and then at first, nothing happens. Jesus doesn't teach. He doesn't perform any miracles. He doesn't drive out the money changers. He goes to the temple. He looks around, and then he leaves. Now, Mark mentions that it's late, but and this is just my opinion here. I think Jesus probably waited because he wanted to make a point. You see, the same fig tree that they will pass by in the morning, 
they passed by today on their way into town. And I think Jesus had a plan. So they leave the temple. They go back to Bethany, probably to the home of the siblings of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus' good friends and supporters. And then the next day, as they're heading back to Jerusalem, we read part one of our strange story. Mark 11, beginning with verse 12 down through 14. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And that's important. I, they didn't just overhear this. I think Jesus intended for them to hear this. But that's just the first part of the story. And before we get to the rest of the story, Mark sandwiches in a whole other story. After cursing the fig tree, Jesus goes on into Jerusalem. He proceeds to the temple. And unlike the day before, he does more than, than look around. But he angrily drives out the buyers and the sellers, as Mark calls them. Animal sacrifice was big business, right? Archaeologists have made discoveries that, that suggest that the entire Jerusalem economy was built on sacrifices in the temple. I mean, massive. Now, you could bring your own sacrificial animal, your own sheep or goat, or if you were very poor, a dove, but then that animal had to pass inspection. And, and what if it didn't pass inspection? What if it got injured on the way? It was to be without defect. And anyway, who wants to drag a sheep halfway across the empire when you could conveniently buy a pre-approved sheep right there at the temple? Now, of course, you had to pay a highly inflated price. Also, your pagan Roman money was no good in the house of God. No siree. You first had to exchange your Roman denarii for temple shekels, again, at inflated rates. Oh, and don't forget to pay your annual half shekel temple tax. Right, so nickel and diming you to death is not a modern corporate invention. All right. They had this down pat 2000 years ago. It was a racket, and Jesus knew it, right? and he didn't like it. He is determined to let the wheelers and the dealers know God's displeasure. And so he kicks over tables, sending silver coins rolling across the pavement. Jesus releases caged animals in a flurry of chaos. And then he chastises them for turning his father's house into a den of robbers. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah saying that my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, at first, it looks like Jesus' righteous fury results in no immediate change, right? The coins are soon collected, and the animals are gathered back in, and business resumes as normal. But Jesus has made his point that God is not happy with what's going on here. And more specifically, 
the religious leaders are not happy with what Jesus has done, and they want Jesus dead. I personally think that, that Jesus did this on purpose to pick a fight with the religious leaders. It was his time, he knew it, and it needed to happen this week because of the significance and the symbolism of the Passover. He was the perfect Passover lamb, all right? So this is Jesus bringing things to a head. But this cleansing of the temple as it's come to be known, all right, this is the meat in the cursing of the fig tree sandwich, right? Because the next morning on their way back into the city, the disciples pass by the same fig tree, and we get part two of the story, beginning with verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Right? It is dead. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Right, so what's going on with this story? It doesn't sound like Jesus is having a good day at all. I mean, first he gets ticked at a figless fig tree, all right, and then he loses it in the temple. What did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? All right, this story actually comes across as sort of a tasteless Snickers commercial. Jesus isn't Jesus when he's hungry. If only Peter could have handed Jesus a Snickers bar, he could have gotten back to helpful miracles like giving sight to the blind and, and turning water into wine. Everybody would love that. And this is another story that baffles believers and delights critics. Right? One of them calls Jesus' outburst, quote, a gross injustice on a tree that was guilty of no wrong. Another questions, why didn't Jesus just caused the tree to produce a miraculous crop of fruit, right? If he could do it with five loaves and two fish, couldn't he do it with figs? So what's the deal with this story, right? Is Jesus just hangry? Does God hate figs? Or is there something more going on? Well, the fig tree plays a huge role in the biblical story all right, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve are forced to hide their nakedness behind an apron of fig leaves. Right? Fig leaves, are, they're big, right? they're huge. Now, figs have been a staple of the ancient Near East for thousands of years, from the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. The oldest archaeological digs have found fossilized figs. Figs were among the bounty that the 12 spies brought back from the promised land as, as proof that this was just a, a bountiful land overflowing. And figs were prized for their relieving shade in the heat, their wood, and the fact that they could provide multiple crops of nourishing and delicious food every year. And so the fig tree becomes a symbol of God's blessing. During Solomon's reign, the fig tree symbolized prosperity and security. First Kings 4.25 says, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, right, from north to south, everyone lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. So the fig tree holds great value as a symbol for Israel and, 
and in the Old Testament, it serves as a metaphor for Israel's relationship with God. The prophet likens Israel to a fig tree that, that bears early fruit, not just good fruit, but early fruit. I mean, what could be better than, than a tree that, that bears not only delicious fruit, but it bears it, it ripens early? Right? It's like, you know, you're out working in your garden and you get that very first cucumber, the, the first strawberries, the, the first watermelon, right? And it tastes so delicious. And so Isaiah 28, 4 says, that fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley will be like figs ripe before the harvest. There's the early figs. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In Jeremiah 24, God shows the prophet two baskets of figs, each placed in front of the temple, right? And one basket is full of, of very good figs, it says, like those that ripen early. But the other basket is full of figs so bad that they can't be eaten. And in this prophecy, the best figs, the most delicious figs are the early figs. And God tells the prophet that these early figs represent the, the remnant from Judah that God will save, right? He will plant them and not tear them down. He will give them a new heart. And ultimately, this points to the gospel and to the church. But the basket of bad figs represents the leaders in Jerusalem who will be judged because of their unfaithfulness. Now, check this out from Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Here's what God says. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing early fruit on the fig tree. So there again, we see that the, the, the most desirable figs are the early figs. And God says that when he found Israel, it was like finding early figs. So good, so delicious. But then as you read through Hosea 9, the figs, they turn rotten. Israel gives herself over to idols. And then down in verse 16, God pronounces judgment, right? He says, Ephraim, that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Ephraim is blighted, diseased. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. They will be wilted, fruitless fig trees. Verse 17 says, my God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. All right, so now the absence of figs or the figless fig tree becomes a symbol of Israel under the judgment of God. Jeremiah 8.13 says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. So the fruitless trees with withered leaves is a sign of God's judgment on Israel. So we've got this clearly established pattern in the Old Testament. Faithful Israel, faithful Israel is like the best figs, the early figs, those that ripen early before the harvest, but unfaithful Israel is likened to a fruitless withered fig tree. So take this information and we bring it back with us to Mark chapter 11. And now what Jesus does here makes a whole lot more sense, right? He's not just cursing an innocent fig tree. He is symbolically acting out God's judgment on faithless Israel. 
right? He's acting out God's judgment on the religious leaders and the religious system of the temple. And he does it first in a metaphorical sense with the fig tree, but then he does it quite literally by driving out the buyers and sellers from the temple courts. Now, the clearing of the temple is the, the meat of this sandwich, and the cursing of the fig tree on both sides kind of tells us why he's doing this. It's an acted-out parable, an object lesson, and this is a, a common technique in biblical prophecy, right? Jeremiah preaches a sermon while wearing an ox yoke to symbolize how Israel's going to be carted off to captivity. God has Hosea marry an unfaithful prostitute to symbolize how God feels about Israel's unfaithfulness. Elijah pours water all over an altar before God uh, sends fire just to show how powerful God is, and here Jesus curses a fig tree to symbolize God's judgment of Israel. Now, yeah, it wasn't the season for fig harvest, but that's not the point. The point is that this tree was in full leaf. It was giving off all of the signs, all of the indications of having figs, right? It looked like it should have figs, right? A fig tree in full leaf should have some fruit. It had the appearance of having delicious early fruit, but this fig tree had nothing but leaves. And here's the point. This should have been Israel's moment. Her promised Messiah had finally come, and at first glance, she looked like she was ready. She had this beautiful, majestic temple, and it looked like it was full of spiritual life and activity. There were throngs of people and thousands of sacrifices. People came from all over. There were priests and religious leaders who were dedicated to faithfulness and devoted to preparing the way for the Messiah. But when the Messiah actually comes, they don't receive her. In fact, they were about to kill her, kill him. They don't receive the Messiah at all. They, they murder him. The cursing of the fig tree symbolizes God's judgment on the religious leaders and the whole religious system in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, what, he, what, what he's telling them is, you're all leaves and no fruit. You look like you should have fruit. You act like you should have fruit, but you've got nothing, right? You pretend to be holy. You pretend to love God, but it's all just a show. There's no substance. There's no there there. It is cotton candy spirituality. It looks good. It tastes sweet at first, but it melts into a sticky mess. And anyone that comes to you hungry, for spiritual truth, for spiritual life, hungry for the love of God, will go away still hungry. The place where people go to meet with God became a place that God was hard to find. And here's the question we've got to wrestle with, right? Is that ever true of us? Is that ever true of the church today? Instead of pointing to Jesus, instead of bringing them closer to God, do we just get in the way? Do we hinder them? Do we push them further away? The reason Jesus loses it in the temple is that because instead of bringing people closer to God, they were keeping them away. And he quotes from Isaiah 56 when he says, 
Uh, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Right? The temple was intended not to be just a place of worship for the Jews, but a place where the Jewish people could bring all people closer to God. But instead of a house of prayer for all people, it'd become a house of profit, right? Imagine trying to worship in the Walmart checkout line, right? And instead of being for all nations, it was for Jews only. In fact, this outer court where all this buying and selling is taking place is called the court of Gentiles. It is the one part of the temple, and it's the most outer part where Gentiles are even allowed, right? But good luck doing any worship or prayer there. You can't. And then beyond that is a wall, right? And Gentiles, all other nations are not allowed, you know? There's a sign there, Jews only. The temple had become the opposite of what God had intended. How did they get there? How do we get there? Let me quote from a fellow pastor, David McLemore. He says, it didn't happen all at once. Nothing like this ever does. It happens one compromise at a time. We don't have to set up trading floors with an international exchange rates. We just have to fail to welcome people. We fail to make it easy to find Jesus. We just have to let our preferences set the agenda, let our feelings rule our interactions. Let God's word about loving one another for Jesus' sake become mild suggestions rather than holy commands. Individually, we must ask, when I come to church, am I coming to get closer to God? Am I coming to know him more, to be with him, to to love him, to experience him, to be, become more like Jesus. But there's a lot of other reasons you can come to church, right? Your spouse wants you to come, bugs you if you don't, right? Your parents tell you you have to, right? You come because you want to see your friends, and you come because what's well, just what a, a good, decent person does. Or it's just what you do. It's what you've always done. Sometimes you learn some interesting things, or you like it when the worship team sings that one song. Right? And those aren't all bad things. But the real question is, do you want him? Right? Because anything else is going to leave you still hungry. Now, collectively, as a church, we have to ask, are we bringing others closer to God? It isn't just about, am I growing closer to God? but but is my worship helping others grow closer to God, right? Is my church or is sunrise a place where people are drawn closer to the Father, right? We have to be that kind of place. If not, we shouldn't be gathering, right? Worship has to be a time and a place where barriers between God and people, those barriers are removed. And if people leave the church because the Bible makes it hard for them to worship God, that's perfectly fine. Um, that's, that's good. That's okay. But if we make it hard for them to worship God, that's between us and God. Right? That's not a good thing. So, as I wrap this up, let me just ask you this question. What is keeping you 
from God right now? What kind of barrier is existing between you and the Father? What's keeping you from drawing closer? Why are you part of church? Why are you listening to this sermon? Those are important questions to ask. Seek your heart and then seek the Father's heart. Thank you. And God bless.